Hello and welcome to How to Save the World with me, Tim Bat. And me, Wavening War. This is a sustainability podcast for people who want to get into sustainability or maybe you're already in that space and you just want to figure some stuff out and do better and learn. Right? Yeah. That's what we're here to do. That's right. And inspire, hopefully. And um, we talk about a little different topic each time, or sometimes a guest. No guest this time. We're doing a me and you. We're doing a deep dive. And we're talking about coffee. Actually, I have to be honest, Tim, when you first suggested it, I thought you meant you wanted to take me for a coffee. And then ah, I yeah, then I realized We no, can totally do we that just as well. Do coffee in the episode. I don't think that me taking you for a coffee is gonna be the most dynamic podcast episode. But we can we can just do that off the mic anyway. That'll be fine. Okay. For right coffee. now though. Coffee. Coffee. One of life's great joys. I love coffee. You love coffee. I do love coffee. The world loves coffee. Coffee's been around since the 13th century. Do you know that? Like in the form that we have it now. It's even older. They used to wrap it in uh, animal fats, I think, in Africa and eat it as a food as far back as a thousand years ago. That is interesting because by contrast, we've got this tree called a medlar, which is a fruit tree. And Mm -hmm. it's from that around about that same time. It's a middle-aged fruit, as in from the Middle Ages fruit tree. And it's a shocker. It's just the most awful thing to eat. And amazingly, it sort of predated our modern use of pears and apples and things, I think, because it was common back then. I was like, geez, this is as good as it got back then. Well, that's the thing. And and at that same time, we had coffee. All the fruits and veggies that we've got now are like hugely different to how they used to be because of selective breeding. We didn't all Bananas have coffee though, did like we? That. I don't I don't think they were sipping on in um, England. Well, it only on. grows in certain places in the world. This is the thing. So it requires pretty specific climates, um, which we will get into in just a moment. Before we do though, did you know that we drink, as a planet, humans, 2.25 billion cups of coffee per day? Okay. That's... So that's less than one each. Yeah. But that's How many of us are there now? Eight seven, billion? Seven, isn't it? Or is it seven, no. seven or eight, somewhere in there. Seven or eight billion people. And so that's across all cultures. So you can knock out China this because they're the, not really drinking the entire coffee, planet are they? Is that's drink- a, there's, somebody's drinking a lot of coffee. Two and a quarter billion. Uh, well, the biggest country in the world per capita for coffee drinking is Finland. And those first slots are occupied almost solely by Scandinavian countries. What? I would, not, I would not have guessed that. New York City is one of the biggest as a city. I love it. Um, so where does coffee come from, Wave? We know we love it. We know we drink it. Do you want to um, hazard a guess? What's the top coffee country in the world? Where, had, where, did, it, where did it originally where come from? Where did we from? get the beans? South America. Uh, true. What country is the biggest exporter of coffee, do you think? Brazil. You got it. Is it? It absolutely is. I was just guessing. You nailed it. I didn't even know the continent to start with. That's amazing. They supply over a third of the world's coffee beans. Uh, The other countries that are the the big exporters, number two is Vietnam, and then it's Colombia, Indonesia, Ethiopia, and Honduras. Okay. All the tropics. Yes. Um, Just so you know as well, so what I'm going to cover off, I should have said this right at the start, but what I'm going to cover off is... um, a bit about like we'll get a bit of a picture of what's so i mean we all know what's so great about coffee i think i hope i hope you have been introduced to the wonders the joys of coffee in your life um and i want to talk a bit about where it comes from what changed in the 70s there was a big change which created quite a lot of problems and some solutions as to how we can fix those things now okay, okay? sounds good so um there's two 
main varieties of the coffee plant that we use to drink, there is Arabica and Robusta. Have you worked in a cafe before? No. Okay. Baristas will know this. And coffee connoisseurs will know this. Yeah. Um, So Robusta is what's usually used for instant coffee. Um, not solely, but usually, like it's used in espresso as well, but it's generally rated as like a lower quality coffee. Um, it makes up about 30% of the world's coffee supply. It's Robusta, and it's called Robusta, I think, because it's a more robust growing plant. Um, Arabica, which is the one that's predominantly used, it has a better flavor profile. It's a lot harder to grow. You've got to be at quite a high altitude to grow Arabica. Um, it only grows between 600 and 2000 meters above sea level. And you need a cool subtropical climate and a lot of moisture, rich soil, and generally speaking, sun and shade. Um, wow, that's very interesting. Coffee plants. Doesn't sound easy to grow. No, it traditionally grows uh, under canopies, so under the shade of trees. And it needs sunlight, but it actually doesn't like a ton of direct sunlight. Um, so it's quite specific about where coffee can grow. Um, so with those countries that I mentioned, Brazil being number one, um, Vietnam, Colombia, Indonesia, Ethiopia, Honduras, and so the list goes on, Mm. they've got a few things in common. Um, one is that generally speaking, uh, their economies are a bit delicate and so are their ecosystems. So, um, there's a lot of damage that has been done and potential damage that gets done to both the environment and to sort of the people chain that's involved with um, cultivating coffee and exporting it as a product. And I mean, if you think of places like Brazil and Honduras, these are incredibly rich forests, rainforests with really diverse um, ecosystems and they're really biodiverse. Um, A thing happened in the 70s though that changed the way we make coffee and it was very bad. <laughs> it's very detrimental for the environment. I am intrigued. I. What was it? So in the seventies. Is it something that our listeners would know? Go. Oh yeah. yeah. I don't think. Okay. So, well, I was very surprised. Um, okay. But I don't know. I can't Put speak us. for everyone. Yeah. So th- this is something that I just, you know, stumbled upon in researching this episode. Um, so the traditional cultivation of coffee plants requires a really biodiverse environment. You basically need a big forest. Um, you need bird life to keep on top of the pests like insects and stuff to stop it from growing and the things that eat the fruits mm-hmm. um, too early. Um, so you need a lot of different things living together typically to create it. Then in the 70s, and I was, I'd ran out of time unfortunately to get to the bottom of this, but I think they might have had a slightly different strain which they either like GM'd or selectively bred of a, a slightly new kind of coffee plant. And um, they started sun cultivation, or what's called su- uh, full sun farming, of In other coffee words, plants. Industrial agriculture yes, took correct. it out of the the forest. And- it, it's a combination of two things. So, well, three things really. One, monoculture. So it's just coffee plants being grown on mass without anything else in, in the area. Two, direct sunlight. They've figured out a way that you can actually do it so that these plants are just getting hit with sunlight all the time, which makes them um, fruit more so that you've got um, more beans that are being produced per you know hectare. Um, and the third component, which is absolutely necessary to this and why this happened in the 70s, is you need fertilizers um, mm. to make this happen. So you actually need a ton of fertilizer. And these are nitrogen fertilizers, which you know quite a lot about. Yeah, we've done this in other episodes, haven't we? We have yeah. indeed, yeah. 
Um, so what this resulted in is a huge amount of deforestation, um, particularly in Central America. Um, obviously, if you're trying to get the most bang for your buck and you're a coffee farmer and you found a way to just grow nothing but coffee whereas instead you used to have to have a big forest just Such to get the coffee shame, beans isn't it? It's, it's, it's that sentimentality of imagining of how beautiful that way of farming was yeah and it's not like it's gone you know completely from planet earth but this certainly was a really bad thing that swept um you know the globe the other thing to remember with coffee is like coffee is so hugely popular everywhere in the world um there's a stat that gets bandied out and it's not exactly true but it's very close to true which is that coffee is the second most traded commodity in the world after oil i bandied that yeah it's almost true but it's not quite true it was actually a, a misquote from some um i think a un book of statistics from quite a few years ago it but does it's seem it, yeah it true. does seem amazing yeah it, and it again like it's of very close things, to true yeah, yeah. but it's coffee like it, this isn't something necessary for life it's not something necessary no. for industry yeah except you I think it would be, I don't know, flour or I don't know, something yeah. that you really well, needed. Considering the I first one's oil, you'd think number two would be like water or something, right? But it might be in the future. Grim. Anyway, we're talking about coffee. Anyway, yeah. So, um, yeah, so there was this whole revolution in the 70s. And this kind of put me on a bit. There were two little um, side stories here that I kind of got driven into when I started reading about this revolution that happened in the 70s of this different way. Um, to grow beans using fertilizer and direct sunlight. The first was the Green Revolution, which was in um, the 1910s, where this was the dawn of the scientific community inventing a method to create nitrogen in a lab. Ah. Um, something called the Haber-Bosch process. So these chemists cracked a way to be able to, yeah, I guess, extract um and, and harness and collect and store nitrogen. And that fed into the ability to produce um, ammonia, which gave us all of these plant fertilizers. And off the back of that, so this is in the dawn of the 20th century, um, this the world over, there were all of these social and economic implications of this because suddenly all of these countries had an ability to grow enough food for their people and have surplus, which just changes a lot of socioeconomic situations and geopolitical situations absolutely and on the whole like having enough food for all the people to eat is is undeniably a fantastic thing it makes countries way more secure um you don't have as many big wars and conflicts and um you know uh hunters and (laughs) uprisings Mm. and things like that when people can just chill and there's food security so that's a good thing but what it did lead on to is us using um, nitrogen-based and ammonia fertilizers in our plants, and we haven't let go of that addiction to this day. And it's done incredibly damaging things to the soil and to the waterways that it falls into. And the other interesting side story thing I fell into while researching this was that we, it seems, have vastly underestimated the size of the problem um, that fertilizers are creating. So this was from a Cornell University study that was conducted last year. They got a Google Street View car that was equipped with a high-precision methane sensor. And methane is um, super damaging greenhouse gas. I think it's number three in terms of um, 
how damaging they are. I think it's 23 times worse than carbon dioxide. There you go. Um, the researchers discovered that the methane emissions from an ammonia fertilizer plant, so this is an industrial plant creating fertilizer, were 100 times higher than the, fer- than the fertilizer industry's self-reported estimate. They also were substantially higher than the EPA, that's the Environmental Protection Agency in the US, than the EPA's estimate for all industrial processes in the US. So to reframe that, from this reading that they took, just from the industry of creating fertilizer, they had underestimated, underestimated it so much that the, the, what these readings seem to suggest is that this one industry of creating fertilizer is creating um, more methane than they thought all of the United States was. Oh. Its entire economy. Wow. What? Yeah. Wow. Fertilizer production is creating more methane and putting it into the environment than they thought wow, the whole economy was producing. Wow, that's a whole producing. thing we didn't even cover when, when in that soil episode when we covered off what the issues are with these fertilizers. It's pretty bad. That's massive. I read this quote from a man called John Albertson, um, who's the uh, co-author of that study that found that out and a professor of civil and environmental engineering, uh, I believe at Cornell, because that's where the study was from. He said, we took one small industry that most people have never even heard of and found that its methane emissions were three times higher than the EPA assumed were emitted by all industrial production in the US. It shows us that there's a huge gap between prior estimates and real world measurements. Wow. So the situation is a lot worse than we thought. And this is beyond coffee. You've gone pretty global on that. Yeah. So that's all kind of food production. But that's a big part of what feeds into um, the environmental impact that coffee has so let's talk about that for a moment the um in terms of the greenhouse gas emissions that are produced for coffee um the first thing i wanted to have a look at was how does it stack up against other foodstuffs so beef is number one there's um charts that you may have seen online which say for a kilogram of this food or food stuff or the calories or whatever yeah exactly how much um how many kgs of co2 equivalent are released to produce that thing so for one kg of beef it's 60 kg of co2 equivalent of carbon dioxide equivalent um coffee is 17 uh so is that, that makes it a number third. two, or are you just picking no, it up? No, sorry, I was, I was going way down. Yep, there's yep. there's um, a lot of stuff above it. Um, it does make it worse than palm oil. Uh, it's worse than pig meat or poultry, even. So it, it's it's got okay. So it's pretty bad. What about yeah. is cotton on there? Because that was quite bad. I remember. I haven't written cotton down. Mm. I'm afraid, but it will be on the chart. You can definitely check that. But um, yeah, I was quite surprised. So what's that word that describes animals that eat grass and uh, they get Ruminants. energy? Yes. So ruminant an- animals have a way higher profile for um, carbon emissions than other animals. So pigs and poultry, I didn't realize this, but because they're not ruminant, their number of CO2 equivalent is seven, seven kg of CO2 equivalent to produce one kg of pig meat or chicken, poultry. But coffee, 17 kg is Okay, the so why is it so high compared to, say, other grain crops or other... Coffee? Yeah. Well, here's the breakdown, um, and I'll go from small to big, Okay. So the first bit is 
the smallest amount that contributes to that is the processing and transplant uh, uh, transport. Yeah. <laughs> processing and transport. So um, that's about five percent of the total emissions come from that. That's really small. And that would be pretty comparable with anything else on that list. Everything has to be transported and moved yeah. around. I think there will be some impacts by things like weight, maybe like the density of of how much you get. So you need to put, you know, it has a different impact on shipping containers and that kind of stuff, how much you can transport it. Sure. Uh, The second factor, packaging, about a tenth comes uh, of its total greenhouse gas emissions comes from packaging. So more, uh, this is interesting because this would be generally applicable. More impact is coming from the packaging than the transportation. Correct. Yeah. For, for what a CO2 equivalent? Yeah. Okay. I yeah. think this is just for, oh, well, yeah, this is for greenhouse gases. Yeah. They're all lumped together, yep. I think, and then given the CO2, right. CO2 yeah. equivalent number. Um, so that includes, packaging includes emissions from the production of packing materials, uh, material transport, and end-of-life disposal. Wow. The next one on the list is land use, if we continue the hierarchy. So about a quarter comes from land use, um, and that's, Above ground changes in biomass from deforestation, uh, which we know releases carbon and reduces the soil's ability to capture carbon, and below ground changes in soil carbon. So that's like retention. It stops being able to, to capture carbon. So then a little over half of all the greenhouse gases from coffee come from farming. And this includes emissions from fertilizers, manure, and farm machinery. So that's the big one. And it seems like fertilizer is doing a huge amount of the heavy lifting in so terms of the in other CO2. words uh, if i'm getting this right coffee is particularly difficult to farm because it really wants to be in the shade in this it. diverse environment and so if you're comparing it to because i'm interested in this comparison with just other crops that don't have such an impact like i know when we did the clothing one we talked about cotton one of the reasons that was so bad was because it really needed a lot of water yeah um and so maybe for coffee it's just that that it really needs a lot of fertilizer yeah, and so, pesticides as well. Did I, you look into that? Uh, that was mentioned a lot in the articles that I was reading. So pesticides are a huge um, part of this picture because, it, as you uh, correctly put, like coffee plants need a really biodiverse environment for them to grow. And in the absence of that, if you're just having this monocrop, you need fertilizer to make it grow, a load of sunlight, and then you obviously need a lot of pesticides because you don't have birds. And birds are like really instrumental in pruning the insect life away from these coffee plants so that they can survive. Uh, one of the biggest losers from these monoculture, this, this, this shift to um, full sun cultivation of coffee has been bird life. And um, we know that because... Like you said, the shade-growing coffee is really what we want to get back to, and some people are starting to crack onto that. As far as I could see, there is only one certification in the entire world for shade-growing coffee, and it was created by the bird department at the Smithsonian. So the Smithsonian is a collection, a federal collection of museums um, in the United States, and they're like a scientific and sort of art curation organization that keeps all the museums and galleries going for people. It's a fun fact because it's quite a bizarre group to have got. It just goes to show how linked it is. Yeah, exactly. There was a particular guy who 
yeah, did some early tests by himself and kind of was scribbling stuff in a notebook and put it all together and he was part of the Smithsonian Network. So they created this um, this one certification that exists today for shade growing. There are a lot of brands that kind of lay claim to shade growing and I really tried to find what Kiwi brands of coffee um, that are available in the supermarket we can kind of trust, but I didn't really want to wade too much into it because in the absence of a certification being there, a third party actually putting their stamp and going, we've audited this process and we know that they're not just sort of greenwashing this or we're saying it for marketing. There's actually something behind this. It's kind of hard to determine so how strong those words are. Did you find certification brands well, here? There's, there's no certification outside of the States whatsoever. The Smithsonian's the only certification for shade-grown coffee. What? certification did you find so we do have um the rainforest alliance seal which is the green frog um which is sort of the closest uh that we can get in new zealand what about organic or fair trade it's all in the right direction but it does not guarantee um shade growing coffee if it were certified organic that means it doesn't have the the synthetic fertilizers or pesticides Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know if it completely means that it... Well, the other thing is, the great thing about the Smithsonian certification is that there are criteria for it, and I haven't written them down, but there's a few different metrics that that the farmers have to reach. So there is a biodiversity metric that they have to reach. That's cool. So only, you know, 50% of the trees can be part of this particular tree family there's got to and there's got to be um certain heights that the trees have to reach as well um i've forgotten the word but there's like a word for the trees that sit right at the top of the canopy that produce the huge like overarching shade and then there's kind of middle trees and then the coffee plants grow right in the um at the foot in the root system of these other ones Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's cute, eh? Yeah, it is. I like it. And I love that someone's sort of got a certification for it. I know. It's so weird that it's the Smithsonian. Um, So I'll read a little quote from the American Birding Association because it's so funny, but they, like, the bird people seem to have the biggest, you know, vested interest in scientific insight into this shade-grown cultivation process for coffee. Yeah. and the American Birding Association said that shade coffee plantations are second only to undisturbed forests as the best habitat for birds and other fauna in Latin America. Um, what's more is the presence of vegetation amongst coffee plants reduces the need for intense herbicide preparations. It supports at least 50% of the original forest snakes and spider fauna and protects top soil effectively. So... By getting into shade-growing coffee, it has all of these wonderful ancillary effects for the environment that you wouldn't first think of, but they're just all of the natural things that happen when you're in a complicated biodiverse environment. Exactly. That's what I'm hearing. It's just like, uh, you can go, oh my gosh, it's so complicated, but it's it's just, you're really just looking at one system versus the other. One is where you're just letting nature do all of the complicated things on your behalf, and it's actually really simple. And the other is when you've taken over because you wanted to make a bit more money out of the whole thing. And when you take over and don't let nature do X, Y, Z, then it becomes very complicated. And suddenly you're sort of putting out these fires left, right and centre. And we just don't know all of the processes that nature does or even close to it. So we we think we do. And then we start doing it and we're like, oh, this. Yeah, whoops. So we 
need another chemical to do this Ex- other thing because nature's a, not doing it anymore. That's exactly it. It becomes this big chemical game of whack-a-mole. And then if we try, sorry, I don't want to go on, but if we try and work out these technological solutions to, oh, this problem that we've now got, that's what gets me. It's like, oh, perhaps we could just let nature do it because it was doing it so well. Yeah. Rather than trying to work out a new chemical to solve this new problem that we've created. Yeah, that's true. I think there's probably a beautiful union of technology and traditional, you know, practices yes, that yeah, we no, can marry no, together at some point. Not anti at all, but in terms of um, the framework that we're using. Now, here's another thing. So there was a study done that found that the very trees that are good for birds may be simultaneously beneficial for farmers as well. Um, the study highlighted the appeal of nitrogen-fixing legum- leguminous species. Oh, yeah. Yep. These can absorb nitrogen in the air and transfer it yes. down to the soil, making it more fertile. So they're doing that act of what fertilizers are doing, but in a bio-mechanical way. Like, it's a living organism Yeah, nitrogen-fixing plants are super cool, eh? Like, we've got some on the farm where it's like you can either – because you need nitrogen, right? So either you're going to be bringing it in synthetically and causing lots of havoc, or you can bring it in on your trailer full of manure or seaweed or even the coffee, actually, ironically, just like the the grinds from the coffee shop. Gotcha. Um, But you need need good sources of nitrogen. Or the other way you can do it is just to plant a tree that fixes (laughs) nitrogen. They're amazing. So simple. Um. I did say before that I didn't want to get too much into the New Zealand-like brands and stuff because we don't have a certification here. But I do want to give a shout-out to one specific company, and that is Auckland-based Incafe. Have you heard of them? Yes. They're New Zealand's first ever Carbon Zero roaster, and they seem to have most of their blends shade-grown. Not all. I could find some exceptions, but it also depends on... um, where in the world that particular blend is from or or those beans are from makes it um, sometimes really complicated to get or impossible to get uh, shade grown. Uh, And they've got a real dedication to bird-friendly growing methods and also to completely compostable bags. And so there seems to be this real marrying of people who are very interested or you know, touting their interest in the the bird-friendly versions, it seems like that's a good indication that they actually get the shade-growing concept because there's this big relationship between bird life and shade-growing coffee, which is the one that we want. And how about Fair Trade? Did you look into that? Yeah, so Fair Trade is, I mean, Fair Trade's always a good thing and you should always buy Fair Trade where possible. And um, there was a scientific study that I was reading up that said, Fair trade certification does naturally lead to more like ecologically sound practices overall for coffee growing specifically. So it's like always a good thing and you should always be growing fair you should always be buying fair trade certified coffee as well. But it doesn't guarantee specifically this one thing that, you know, seems, really seems to be yeah. the panacea, which is um shade growing coffee. Um so shade grown coffee is, yeah, this, you know, globally going to be this big solution to the problem that we had with this change in methods from the 70s of sun cultivation or sun, full sun cultivation of coffee. And is there more of it happening? Um, yeah, I assume so. It really looks like it. I've only got sort of anecdotal evidence from stuff that was popping up in front of me online, but it seems like people are paying way more attention to this. Um, than ever before that smithsonian certification hasn't been around that long oh, okay so this is kind of a 
good new revelation that people are happening are having about their favorite drink, which is a good thing. Mm. There's other environmental impacts, of course, as well for coffee. Um, specifically, the one that most people think of is disposable cups, and they sure. should, yeah, um, because disposable cups are not great. Um, they're paper, which is usually fine, but they're lined with plastic, which is the essential bit that makes it waterproof to keep the coffee in there, and that makes them almost impossible to recycle. Mm. And sometimes they're PLA as well, eh? Um, yes. That um, vegetable-based lining, which is... You can't compost it at home. It just gets all a bit complicated. Yeah, there's definitely people who are trying to find solutions to this. And, you know, that's still better than just a purely plastic um, coffee cup rolling around. What did you reckon? Well. In terms of what you thought a good solution might be. For disposable cups? Well, just, you know, cups. Having yeah. What vessel you have Here's your coffee thing. in. Every, like, in. Rightly so. Keep cups are all good and everything. And I know I see these online wars raging about you know, how long you've got to have a keep cup for before it actually pays for itself in terms of disposable cups. But, like, we've all got mugs, and you can use that. Like, you could have a mug in your car, and you could go into the coffee shop with the mug that you have from home, and that is all good. It's, yeah, it's almost it, like a socially acceptable thing. Just I think. do it. People's... <laughs> So we've paved the way now with the keep cups. And, yeah. And now people are – I think actually because people are saying this. I'm hearing this all the time now. People are saying, just take a mug. I know. And like, I know, Why do you have to have a special thing? I know people are different and stuff, but, like, I wouldn't have any issue just taking – just take a mug from home. Okay. It's let's, fine. Let's do talk, that. Let's talk this You don't through. have to buy a solution to if this you problem. You've got one. sitting down, yeah. you, would have their, you would have their cup anyway. You wouldn't have to take one from home. Absolutely. So if you're on the go. Yeah, I mean, if you're in your car or something, I can just keep a gosh darn coffee cup in there. Well, you can't, get the, you can't get the mug in because of the handle yes, sticking you, out. You can't get it down there. Yeah, hole. you can. Well, it's not, it's not going to be full of coffee when it's in there. You can find a little spot to put it in there. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a hard um, thing that people have to do to get rid of a big problem of disposable cups, which is a huge problem. We throw away millions of them every but year. But actually, just on that, though, you can get ceramic keep cups. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Yes, that's true. And ceramic yeah. are good. I really like the collapsible ones, too, even though they're made out of silicon. Yeah. But they're like, because then they fit anywhere. They're pretty cool. Um, so get a keep, I mean, get a mug is what I would say from home. But also keep cups are all good. Um, disposable cups are bad. It's nice that people are finding solutions for them. Ecoware and Innocent Packaging are trying to improve things. Um, they use the plant-based bioplastics for the coating and the lids instead, and which means you, the whole cup's compostable. If you did have a compostable cup, what would you do with it? Well, you've got to check that if it's home compostable or industrial compostable. But and, then, and then you've got to compost it. Yeah. You can't just chuck it in the rubbish. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Just yeah. putting that out there. Um, Z Energy switched on to they sell four and a half million takeaway coffees every year, and they they swapped over to compostable cups. So like just here in NZ, things, things are happening. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Um. So there's also the human factor. Coffee growers are generally poor, and in developing countries or countries that have quite vulnerable economies, and as a commodity, coffee's incredibly volatile there's a little bit of a side story thing but from 1962 to 88 the un had the international coffee organization which set prices um to avoid a mismatch between supply and demand it's kind of the same thing you get with what is it called opec with the oil you want to control how much is going out they took their hands off the wheel and really screwed up in 1988 and um it plunged the coffee industry into a massive crisis where the 
market got flooded with too many beans and so the prices crashed and it wiped out all of these farmers. And when that happens in such a highly traded commodity, um, the farmers can lose everything because they can't sell the beans for the cost it made to produce them. So when that happened in 1988, um, that's when fair trade was born. So the precursor uh. to fair trade was an organization that had a Dutch name, which I won't pronounce, from the Netherlands. And it was born out of that and it set an artificial price floor so that coffee farmers could survive. That's, that's interesting. That's what it came out of. Huh. So another reason why I mean, you should support fair trade. Coffee is such a significant commodity, isn't it? It's even birthed the fair trade movement. Absolutely, yeah. So um, those are all my bits of paper that I'm furiously been shuffling around. But coffee, incredible thing. Cool history. I love it to bits. Yeah. Really fascinating history. It's got such an important part of our like global culture. And most of our lives, when you really think about it, mm. um, and it's a good thing. I don't, I don't want this podcast to be a thing where we just wave our finger at you, you know, constantly about the things you need to do. But there are ways to improve your coffee drinking for the good of the planet. And they are. Let's see if we can support any companies that really get into shade-grown coffee. Always buy fair trade and certified organic, please. And... Um, Let's get rid of the use of disposable cups, whether that be for you buying a keep cup if you don't have one already, or ideally just bringing a, a coffee cup or a mug from home into the cafe and keeping that in the car. Um, or, you know, beyond that, maybe eventually us lobbying the government to make some legal changes mm, around disposable mm. coffee cups like we did with single-use plastic bags. Yeah, I like it. It's In terms of this episode and this focus, it's because it is a, it's a nice, simple one. We're looking at one commodity mm. and it's so easy to do the right thing because it never sits well, even, even when the word's coming out of your own mouth, I don't think. If you say, oh, I can't afford to buy organic coffee because it's like, it's coffee. You know? It's a non-essential item, it's is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like, if you, uh, I mean, I, I know some people wouldn't agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, um, we've, we have to be able to make good choices around these things where, where we can. It's like chocolate too. To, Honestly. To, it's, it's just, it's, it's a nice, easy thing to do the right thing with. Buying certified organic coffee is not that much more expensive at all. The non-certified coffee in most cases, unless awesome. you're getting like instant coffee mm. and then that's a mm. whole other different thing. But if you're buying coffee for your house or coffee at a cafe, like guys, yeah. it kind of should be fair trade and organic yeah. at this point. Yeah. And lo- and and to be fair, we're getting there, aren't we? We are. Like it's, yeah. not, it's not sort of some weird hard thing anymore. Not anymore. No. Which yeah. is good. Yeah. So that is How to Save the World's episode on coffee. It's been a pleasure bringing it to you. Thanks, Tim. It's, I, I love how you did this one because you're the coffee drinker. If we ever do a tea episode, I'll do the tea. Awesome. Maybe we'll get Di back in for that one oh, as well. Oh, yeah. He needs to do the tea. Di, he yeah. loves it. We will catch you in the next episode of How to Save the World. Um, but until then, share this episode around with any coffee drinkers in your life. Um, and you can rate us and review us on iTunes, which helps other people find the show as well. Until the next episode... Stay sustainable. <laughs> Did you like that? Yeah. <laughs>